You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Well, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, take them out. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're in a series, as most of you know, on on this letter uh, from Paul to this church in Corinth. As you find uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we're looking at verses 1 to 9 uh, this morning. Uh, But before we do anything else, let's, let's pray together. In Psalm 119, we read, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light, it imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me, turn to us, Lord, and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. And so, Father, as we gather we gather with this in mind, that we turn now to your word and, and then pray that you would grant us insight and wisdom. As we saw last week, the Spirit of God in us gives us understanding, uh, to understand the deep things of God. And so we pray for that today. Help us all, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in this series now uh, for about six weeks. Uh, I kicked things off about five Sundays ago, and then I was gone for a while, as you know, and then picked things up uh, last Sunday again as we finished off chapter two. Uh, but this week, in preparation for our time, I, I did something that I think is really important um, when you're studying the Bible, especially if you're studying the Bible like we are, kind of taking things verse by verse, section by section. And what that important thing to do is, is to every once in a while just step back and reflect and think about, think about some of the big things, the big rocks in the jar. Uh, I think this is important because sometimes we glance over very obvious yet very helpful things because we're down in the weeds and the muck and we're tackling issues. And so I, I did that this week. I just sat in a coffee shop, thought about some big items as it relates to the letter of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that jumped out, and several things jumped out, but one of the things that jumped out about this letter is how much Paul cares for this church. Um, he cares for her a lot. He cares for her deeply. Um, and why this stands, and I know you go, well, Norm, that's a very obvious statement. There's nothing significant about that. But not so obvious, I think, simply because of how messy, as we've talked about, this church is. And if anybody had a, a right, so to speak, to not care for a church, it was Paul to this one. Um, but he does care for this church. And I say, if anybody had a right, well, I say that because of how some of the people in this church feel towards Paul. And yet, as we know, and I think it's a good reminder, he cares for her. In fact, as we saw when we just began this, uh, this series in, in chapter 1, verse 4, he was thankful for this church. And as I thought about that, I thought, are you? Am I? Are, are we, not the Corinthian church, they're all dead now, are you thankful for the church? Are, are, do you care for the church? 
Uh, do, you, do you care for the church in spite of its messiness? And the reason why I ask that is because some people today, and, and more people than we would probably care to admit to, um, when things go tough in a church, they just choose to leave. And, and I'm not talking about going from one church to another. I'm talking about leaving the church altogether. They, they leave because, yeah, it gets, it gets messy at times, and they, and they pack up, and, and they leave behind brothers and sisters in Christ, parents in Christ, sons and daughters in Christ. They, they leave them behind just just like that. And, and I know people have their reasons and some very good reasons. Uh, they've been hurt by the church or they see the hypocrisy in the church or church really isn't meeting any of their needs. And so they, they leave or at best they hold the church at, at arm's length. And yet Paul doesn't do that. And that jumps out. And I think we're to see that instead of leaving or not doing anything with them or standing apart, he steps in. He, he doesn't hide from the hurt. Uh, as, as we've already seen and we're going to see today, he, he steps in and he, and he tackles the hurt and he tackles the hypocrisy and he tackles the self-indulgence. Um, he doesn't pretend it's not there and, and nor does he just pack up and go, go somewhere else. He, he responds to it. He speaks into it. And I think we're to do the same. I, I, we can't miss that. Uh, Jesus died for the church. Um, Jesus is committed to building the church. Uh, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the heavenlies. Paul writes in Galatians 6 that we should not give up doing good and especially doing good to those in the church. Elders are to care for the church. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The entire book of Acts is all about the planting and establishing of churches. There are 27 New Testament letters, Holy Holy Spirit-inspired New Testament letters, and most of them are written to churches, local churches or groups of churches. Jesus wrote one letter in the New Testament called the book of Revelation. He wrote it through John, but he wrote letters. And he wrote seven of, them, seven of them specifically, or one to seven churches, and he, 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 he wrote them to churches, local churches. Uh, he cares about the church. Uh, he's married to her, and, and so I think it's safe to say that Christians should care for what Jesus cares for. So that's one thing that jumped out, just big picture. Another thing that jumped out, and I think we could miss it, but it's important not to, for it leads into today's text especially, is that Paul expects that the gospel changes everything. And, and I'm not talking about the gospel merely as it's the gospel that brings salvation to us. It does, obviously. It is the power of God unto salvation. But what I mean by the gospel changes everything is Paul expects the gospel to change everything in terms of how we do life. It's the lens that we're to look through. It should change everything about how we function, how we exist, how we we exist with one another. And again, that takes us to our our text uh, today. Um, But before before going there, 
Uh, just a reminder uh, of last, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about the gospel over the last few weeks. The, what is the gospel? Uh, the gospel is good news. Uh, the gospel is the good news story of Jesus coming, living, dying, rising, ascending, and now interceding on our behalf as, as Pat just prayed. The last chapter and a half have been about the gospel. In fact, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10, Paul was addressing the divisions in the church and said that there shouldn't be divisions in the church. Why? Because of the gospel. And what he's done over the last chapter and a half is he's talked about the gospel and he's gone deep into it. But he says that divisions shouldn't be in the church because the gospel brings unity, because the gospel changes everything because the gospel puts us on the same footing and breaks down all dividing walls. It's because of the gospel that in the church there is, there's no gender divide or age divide or social status divide. There's no color of skin divide. There's no nationality divide. Because of the gospel, we are of one mind, which is where we ended last week. What mind do we all share? Well, if you're in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. And as I said, that's where we left off last week. But now, after this sort of sweet gospel diversion, Paul returns to the topic he began addressing back in chapter 1. Let's take a look at verses 1 to 4 in the third chapter. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and, leaving, uh, and behaving excuse me, only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Let's just stop there. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this text um, has controversy all over it. Been a lot of debate over, over this section of 1 Corinthians. And the controversy comes over the discussion of who is Paul addressing here? Who is he writing to specifically? Well, it seems obvious um, that he is writing to brothers, uh, he writes and says that in verse 1, but I, brothers, that actually is a gender-neutral gender term. It could read brothers and sisters, but he's addressing brothers, which if you've been here for the last number of weeks, this should take you back, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says there, I appeal to you, brothers, or brothers and sisters. So it's safe to say that He's not addressing brothers and sisters in a familial sense, in a blood relation sense, but he's referring and speaking to, to brothers and sisters in a family of God sense. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, he says that when he refers to these brothers in verse 1 as infants in Christ. And if these are the same brothers that he is referring to here, as he did back in chapter 1, verse 10, then these brothers, brothers and sisters, would be those defined by Paul in verses 1 to 9 as sanctified in Christ, and saints, and 
individuals who had received the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so he is addressing fellow Christians. This is made even clearer when comparing how Paul addresses this group to how um, he speaks of the natural person back in chapter 2, verse 14. He doesn't address this group in chapter 3 like he would address natural persons because natural persons don't accept spiritual things. But he speaks to this group as those who should accept spiritual things because, as he said, they are in Christ. And, and therefore, he's addressing Christians who are thinking like mere humans and walking like people of the flesh. And how do we know that? Well, because of the jealousy and strife among them, and they should know better. And so what Paul does here is he admonishes them for their jealousy and the strife that it's creating. Uh, Paul writes this in Galatians 5, uh, same author, he writes in verses 19 and 20, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, there it is. Jealousy, there it is. Fits of anger, rivalry, and it's not a coincidence that what comes next in this list are things like dissensions and divisions. That's what's going on in the church in Corinth. But why does this bring controversy? Well, it brings controversy because there are some who say you can't be in Christ and be people of the flesh. Uh, this text is where we get the description of carnal Christians, that word flesh, carne, speaking of meat. And some people would suggest that's an impossibility. You cannot be a, a carnal Christian. And they, they point to verses like Romans 8.13. You can read it behind me where Paul writes that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Spiritually speaking, you will die. And so if Paul writes here in our text that the, these people are of the flesh, then, then they conclude, well, he must be writing to, to non-Christians. And yet our text here gives no support to land there because of the language that I just went through with you. So how do we reconcile it? How do we figure this out? Well, one way is we go back to Romans 8. And we go back to that verse where Paul continues in verse 13 by writing, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is this? This is the call to mortify the flesh, to kill the flesh. But this call to put to death the deeds of the body is not a, a one-time event, but an ongoing call. And nor does it preclude a, a Christian's temptation to do otherwise. And nor is it something done outside of us, but inside of us as we work in harmony with the spirit that is in us. We are to put to death daily by way of the spirit in us, the deeds of the body, which wage war against us. As Paul writes in Galatians 5.17, writing to Christians, he writes that the flesh is opposed to the spirit and keeps us from doing the things we want to do. So can Christians give, give in to the things of the flesh and even for seasons walk and live according to the flesh? Of course we can. 
If we couldn't, then there would be no reason for instructions to do otherwise. Uh, in, in this scene that uh, Paul writes about in, in Galatians 2, uh, he confronts Peter, um, Peter the Apostle, also known as Cephas, and he calls Peter, uh, Peter out for his hypocrisy. He was no longer eating with uh, Gentiles. He was only eating with Jewish people. And Paul confronts him. And this is what he says in Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a, a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter in that moment was living according to the flesh, and, and Paul, as he does in our text, calls him out on it. He didn't conclude that Peter wasn't a Christian, but that Peter was a Christian but not living as one. He, he was not living according to the truth of the gospel. That's what's going on in our text as well. What what does the New Testament um, teach about the presence of sin in the Christian's life? Well, it says a lot. But what it emphasizes more than anything else is that the desires of the flesh remain, but they no longer reign in us, as they do with the natural person. Um, that's why Paul writes in Romans 6, and I know I'm giving you a lot of verses, um, but let me give you a few more. In Romans 6, when he says, let not sin therefore reign, there's the word. The therefore takes us back to the beginning of chapter 6, where Paul has said, look, you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your heart, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So as I just said, sin no longer reigns or has dominion, but it does remain. But now... As instruments of righteousness, we have a new choir director. And that choir director is the Spirit of God in us, and therefore, we are able to say no to sin and not gratify the desires of the flesh. The natural person can't, and that's the difference. But it is a battle, as we all know. It is a battle. And it's an ongoing one, and it's the reason, this is the reason, I'll go back to Romans with you, this is the reason for why we groan today. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8 this time. Not only the, the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit of God in us, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as firstborn sons. Then he adds this, the redemption of our bodies, this, the flesh. But I thought we have been redeemed by Jesus. Well, we have, spiritually speaking, we have. But we groan for, 
full redemption of our bodies because a time is coming when this, the flesh, give myself bruises on my, my belly, this will no longer wage war against our spirit. Complete harmony. No, no war, no battle, any, any more. Our flesh fully redeemed. But until that time comes, we will groan and fight a daily battle and we must fight a daily battle by way of the Spirit in us, which is another reason why I believe Paul is writing to Christians in our text. And the reason why I believe he's writing to Christians in our text is because if they weren't in Christ, he, he wouldn't care about their divisions and strife. He'd care about their salvation. But Paul is not writing to a bunch of non-Christians in a church telling them to get along. He's writing to Christians who aren't living like Christians, living according to the flesh. It's why he says in verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In other words, they weren't merely human. They were acting like it, but they weren't merely human because of the Spirit of God in them. And so Paul rebukes them, and rightly so, which is another important part of this whole discussion of sin in the life of a believer. What's also important in this conversation is that even though Christians will give in to desires of the flesh, we aren't to excuse it or, or continue in it especially when it's pointed out, as Paul is pointing this out to this church here in chapter 3. As I have said many times, the question isn't whether you will sin, but how you respond when you do. For a Christian to continue living in sin, after it's pointed out, is perhaps evidence that they were not a Christian in the first place. The most miserable people should be Christians who are practicing sin because of the Spirit in us. And so we need to be aware of that as well. Uh, Paul spends a lot of time talking about that. At the end of the second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he actually writes, you know what? You should perhaps test yourself and to see if you're truly of the faith. I think, I think that's a call for all of us. to go. What, what is, is my faith a saving faith? Is my faith one that has demonstrated itself in a changed life where, where, where Jesus is becoming greater? And, and every day I wake up wanting to live for him and see the effects of the gospel in everything I do. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, John writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning, practicing it, living in it, making your life with it, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, for this, the, reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So there was jealousy and strife in this church, and the reason why is because they were living according to the flesh, which showed up in their overvaluation of people. But before looking at the cure, 
What's the cure for this church? Take a look at verse 2. Something I want to point out about verse 2 because there's confusion over verse 2 as well. In verse 2, Paul writes, I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. Okay? What, what is he talking about? And what is he referring to? Is he referring to an earlier letter? Or was he referring to an earlier time when he was there? We know Paul is no longer there. He's writing them a letter from Ephesus. So he's not there. But what is he writing, writing about here? And in addition to that, what is he saying to them? Is he saying, look, either by letter or when I was with you before, I couldn't go deep with you. I didn't go deep with you because of the sin in your life. And so I only stuck to the ABCs of the Christian faith. Is, is that what he's saying? Well, it could be. Could be, but I, I think it may be something else. And, and that something else is, could, could it be that Paul hadn't held back on them, but that they hadn't thought deeply enough about, about what they had been taught before, which is why they were still acting like mere humans. In other words, Paul wasn't holding back on them, but their sin was keeping them back from greater depth and insight. This is where I land. Because Paul is not, and I'll show you this in a, in a moment, Paul is not one of those guys who go, here's the gospel, now that you get the gospel, let's talk about meteor things. That's not his MO. As I said at the beginning, Paul is all about the gospel. He never moves on from the gospel. He keeps reminding people about the gospel and how it should, like I said, it should change everything. Paul has spent the last chapter and a half talking about the gospel, and he writes that because of the gospel, there should be no jealousy and strife among them. That's one implication of the gospel. For the gospel, I've got a fly up here that's hanging out with me. Um, for the gospel, as I mentioned earlier, brings unity. That's what the gospel does. Not divisions and strife. But that they have division and strife in this church is a demonstration that they don't get the gospel as fully as they should. Right now they are thinking of the gospel like a, a child and not, a, not an adult, as Paul writes. I, I say that um, Paul doesn't move on from the gospel because when Paul writes about different implications or different arguments that he brings up or asks that he makes in his letters, he always goes to the gospel as reason for it. Um, for example, and I'll go through these rather quickly, but just to show you what I mean, when Paul talks about giving, for example, to this church in 2 Corinthians, he writes, well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. So give, that's what he says. That's why we call you to give as an act of response to the gospel. Sexual purity, another example, 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's the gospel. So because of that, what's the implications? Glorify God with your body, because he bought it. It's not yours anymore because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Marriage, 
Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. <laughs> Implication of the gospel. How about service? Matthew 20, this is from Jesus himself, who and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's again the gospel. We see this also in other places. I won't take you to them, but in our humility and care for others, as we saw last week, our motivation should be the mind of Christ, as Paul lays out in, in Philippians 2. In, in uh, Romans 14, it's a long text. I'm not going to read it for you. They may put it on the screen. You can read it for yourself. But Paul is talking about divisions in the church there, difference of opinion over things like certain days of the week or whether you should drink or not. And Paul, his, his instruction to the church is not come to a consensus, take a vote. He actually says the opposite and says, you should become thoroughly convinced in your own mind on where you land in these areas. So don't just have an opinion, have a conviction. And may it be really strong. And then this is what he says, lay it all down for the sake of the gospel. Because the gospel is our footing. The gospel is what breaks down divisions. The gospel is what breaks brings unity to us, not our consensus over whether it's okay to drink or not, or, or whether we meet on a Saturday or not. The, the gospel is the thing. It brings unity to us, um, and he does it again and again. So going back to our text, if, if the cause of what Paul is addressing is because they are of the flesh, and the symptom is division and strife, then what is the cure? Well, the cure is the gospel, which is to redirect our eyes to the, to the God of the gospel and off of others, which is what Paul writes of next. Take a look at verses 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So what is the cure for strife and division in the church? It's, it's setting our eyes on the one we are called to glorify. When our attention is focused on him, we'll have no room for division and strife. And we will see people as they should be seen. Not elevated, but what Paul says, he makes very clear on how we are to see them. This rests on several realities that are to flesh out in our lives. One is we must have a, a proper view of ourselves. We are to see ourselves as servants and nothing more, as Paul says in verse 5. Paul is going, look, don't think of me this way. I'm just a servant. So don't have an elevated view of me and mine. Second, we are to have a proper view of each other. We are to see ourselves as fellow workers. See, what Paul is doing here with Apollos, he's going, look, we're fellow workers. We're on the same team. Don't divide over us. We're not divided. Fellow workers. 
just serving in different roles in the work of God. Third, we are to see our leaders properly. They aren't anything but for the grace of God. As Paul makes clear in verse 7, as Paul wrote of earlier, he didn't die for them. They weren't baptized in his name. To, to fix our eyes, as someone put it, on people in ways that are unhealthy is to, to bow down to the brush and the palette of, of a painter more than the painter themselves. And last, we are to have a proper view of our work and the work of others. Some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the growth. As, as Paul writes in verse 9, we are God's field, his field. We are God's building, his building, and no one else's. And therefore, glory be to God. We're not to look down on others. We're not to look down on ourselves. We are to simply remember that there is only one who should be bowed down to. And it's not another person. And it's certainly not ourselves. There's one other thing to see in this um, before we begin uh, wrapping up. Uh, Something I want you to see in verse 8. I want to encourage you with something in verse 8. In in verse 8, Paul writes that we all receive wages, uh, rewards, wages, according to our labor. Why am I pointing this out? I'm pointing this out is because we receive wages or, or rewards not based on our fruit, but on our labor. I, I highlight this because we, we really get enamored with, with fruit when it comes to ministry. Uh, and we make much of others because of their fruit in, in ministries. But God doesn't reward fruit. We, we may, but God rewards our labor And he rewards our labor because it's God who gives the growth. It's God who's responsible for for the fruit. But I I want to encourage you in this because you may have a call of God and it's, from a worldly perspective, it's it's pretty small, right? Influence-wise, you may be be leading a CG. Awesome. But you're not leading a a church of 35,000. Or you may be teaching a a Sunday school class, teaching kids. That's fantastic. But in your mind, you may think, well, this really is kind of insignificant. It's not a big deal. I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm not doing what that person is doing. And what Paul is saying here is, look, God rewards our labor. He's responsible for the fruit. He's the one who gives growth, not anyone else. Paul planted a church. Apollos is watering a church but God gives the growth. I need to wrap up. As I close, I said at the beginning that I took some time this week to reflect on this letter and a few things jumped out. One, as I said, was Paul really cares about this church. We should too. We should care for what Jesus cares for. And the second was that Paul seems to think that the gospel should make a difference in everything. That, that those are the lenses, the gospel lenses that all of us are to, to wear. And we never move on from the gospel. We just go deeper into the gospel. But there's a third thing that stood out. And it really comes out of, out of today's text. And that is 
There should be no place in the church for celebrity culture. Like when I read this, I thought and reflected on it. Like part of me is like, why is this here? Like, why was this even a thing? Where you have divisions over people, people enamored with people. Like, why is this here? And and I think the reason it's here is because this is our proclivity, this is our tendency. To, to, To make too much of people. I mean, our culture is a celebrity culture, isn't it? <laughs> Musicians, athletes, actors, social media influencers, politicians, right? We make much of, of people. My, my guess is that perhaps for some of us this week, we've thought a lot more about people than even Jesus himself. We can't get enough of them. They are the golden calves we bow bow down to today. But this should not be in the kingdom of God. But as we know, and if we were honest, even in the church we have our celebrities. And our fandom towards them brings division. Still, today. If not in a church itself, then perhaps in your family or with your friends, it brings division. And, and yet there's even something worse than that, even worse than division and strife, and that is when we have a fandom towards somebody else, it takes our eyes off Jesus. And when we do, we act like mere humans. And this should not be. And so, as we move from the word to the table, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know what's so great about Hebrews 12? And I'll close with this. What's so great about Hebrews 12 is Hebrews 11 precedes it. You should write that down. (laughs) Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a rock star list of people of great faith, right? I mean rock stars. World is not even worthy of them, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. Then you get to Hebrews 12, and Hebrews 12 begins, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on them. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus on him, because he's the author, he's the beginning And he's the end of all things, the beginning of our salvation, and he will complete our salvation when we see him face to face. And get rid of the sin that's clinging. Move on from that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so as we go to the table, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, but let's not move on from that this week. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.